My guess is that you have had someone let you down. And if you haven't already, you one day will. And that's not really a cynical comment. It's just the odds that someday you will. And I don't just mean someone distant. I mean someone close, maybe even a hero. When I, I was in high school, a friend of mine introduced me to her older brother, although I already knew who he was. He was just about to leave for college. Um, and before she introduced us, uh, I knew about his stellar high school career, that he was a straight-A student, that he had been a high school state debate champion. He was handsome. He had a beautiful girlfriend. He'd even thrown a no-hitter for our American Legion baseball team. We got better acquainted the summer after his freshman year in college. Um, I was involved in a group much like Young Life for students in our community, and my friend's older brother led a small group for guys, although really it was a much larger group. It was 20 or more of us who met in his parents' basement, and uh, he was smart, winsome, articulate. He had ready answers to nearly all our questions. He pushed us to read our Bibles and to think through important questions. Just three years older than me, he became my idol. I hung on his every word. I asked him my hard questions. I looked to him for life advice. So when I graduated from high school, and I was a bit aimless, a story for another day, um, he recommended that I consider going where he went to school. So I spent my freshman year at the Bible college that he was attending. I went that school year, and it was a good decision. I benefited from my time there, and then I went back to Kansas to go to college. He graduated from that school with top honors. He went to another school, again, top honors, and then went to get a PhD at an Ivy League university and began a teaching career that's continued to this day. But along the way, something changed. Instead of affirming historic Christian faith, he started raising objections. Eventually, the objections became an open disavowal of everything I'd ever heard him say. At first, I only heard of that from a distance. But when I read the account of his journey away from faith in the introduction to one of his best-selling books, I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut. Some of the particulars he mentioned in the story I was very familiar with, including conversations with my own grandfather. Some years later, I was in the part of the country where he teaches, and so I reached out to him, and we had lunch at a sandwich shop just on the edge of campus, and he told me personally the story of his journey. By then, I was much better informed about the issues that he'd wrestled with I'd come to very different conclusions, and despite his brilliance, I believed, and I still believe, that he's wrong. But I walked away from that encounter sad. I wasn't angry. We're not enemies. He's not hostile. He knows where I stand, and I certainly know where he stands through the books he publishes about every other year at Easter time. My sadness is not, though, just personal. It's also because of what I believe are unfulfilled possibilities. Had his core Christian convictions remained in place, I believe that he would have done great good. I believe that my story would have been repeated by dozens, um, if not hundreds of times. Instead, his teaching and writing have provided a script for those who are hostile to Christian faith. He's led skeptics further away from the truth. He's destroyed the faith of some who, confronted with a winsome, articulate spokesperson for religious skepticism, have crumbled and abandoned faith. Today's Bible story raises a question. And the question is, what are we to do with those who disappoint us? When someone we once admired lets us down, perhaps even betrays us. Maybe it's a leader who abused his or her authority. A pastor who preached morality but practiced immorality. A financial advisor who rips us off. A parent who shatters our trust. Or a politician who turns out to be just as corrupt as the person that you voted out in order to vote him or her in. 
Now, whether this is someone you know personally or only a public personality, what do we do when someone important in our lives fails us? Many times in those kinds of circumstances, people become cynics. Others let that hurt become a wound that never heals. And some decide never to trust anyone. This summer, we've been in the first part of a series that we're doing over several years on the life of David. In this part of the story, David's been the main character, although the narrators move back and forth to telling us stories about David and stories about King Saul. And if you've been with us, you know that it's a difficult story. David, on one hand, is on the way up, and Saul is on the way down. Saul's first years as king of Israel were good years. He was every bit the king Israel wanted. He did what God wanted and what the people needed. But then his life began to unravel. So over the last 12 weeks, we've watched this happen. But still, Saul has remained king, even though it is obvious to everyone that David is to be Israel's next king. Now, David's relationship with Saul was complicated. When David first met Saul, he was brought there to the palace to be of some help. Saul was suffering with what many believe was some kind of depression. And David had the gift of music, which calmed Saul. All that changed, though, uh, when Saul, or when David, excuse me, eliminated the giant Goliath, who was a threat to the nation of Israel. When that great victory happened, there were some women who wrote a song that became kind of a hit. It was something that celebrated David's exploits. But when Saul heard the song, he became jealous, and he let that jealousy take root, and he began to act in ways hostile to David. But as we've seen over the last uh, number of weeks, David didn't reciprocate. In fact, in many ways, Saul remained his hero. He respected his leadership gifts. He'd been raised to respect authority. And since Saul was the leader of the nation and God had not removed him, David continued to honor the role that he was in. Now, some of that loyalty was personal. As a child, he'd undoubtedly heard of Saul's heroism. As he got to know him, as he lived in the palace, their relationship grew, although it also grew increasingly complicated. In all of that, David continued to honor Saul. Even in the darkest of days, when Saul had put a price on David's head, he honored his position as king. He grieved that their relationship had taken a bad turn. But even after Saul um, tried to murder him multiple times, David's love and loyalty for Saul remained, never wavered. Until God changed things, David believed that Saul was Israel's king and he should not do anything to abandon him. Again, David knew that one day he would replace Saul as king. He knew it, everyone else knew it, even Saul knew it. But David refused to do anything to speed up that transition. Twice, David had Saul in his sights, and he declined to pull the trigger, metaphorically, actually chop off his head. Today's story, though, starts with Saul in a very, very difficult position. In fact, Saul knows that he's probably facing disaster. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, um, which you can find on page 424 in the Pew Bible, page 424, 1 Samuel 31, Saul is facing a larger, better equipped, and strategically positioned Philistine army. And right away, we see that the battle doesn't go well. Verse 1 says, the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many of them died on Mount Gilboa. So the battle turned very quickly against the Israelites. And then for Saul, things went worse, went, got from bad to worse. Verses 2 and 3. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. They killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchi, Shua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. 
mortally wounded, Saul knew what was ahead. He knew the Philistines. They had a reputation for unspeakable atrocities, and so he didn't want to fall into their hands, so he decided that he would do something. So in verses 4 through 6, uh, tells what happens next. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. There's a lot we could say about what's going on here, but let me just say all the way around, this is a tragic event for everyone involved. One of the narrator's key concerns here is to prove that David's right to the th- or prove David's right to the throne and to show that he didn't manipulate things. So he's very careful here to remove any sense of David's wrongdoing, to show that David is God's successor, but David didn't do anything to speed things along. He didn't manipulate or plot to take the reins of power. What happens next just increases the shame for Saul and for all of Israel. Verse 7, when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite camp had fled and that Saul and his sons had had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. Now, the Philistines are doing here what armies through all of history have done, and that is when they've got the army ahead of them on the run, they go after and go in for the kill. So the Israelites fled in terror. They left behind their homes and their farms, everything probably just taking uh, clothes on their back and few possessions. Today, there are millions upon millions of forcibly displaced persons, refugees, Syrians, Colombians, Iraqis, Sudanese, Somalians. Through no fault of their own, they've been forced from the homes because of the terror of war or genocide. They want to go home, but they can't. 90% plus of them, they don't want to go anywhere else. They just want to go back home. And the people of Israel living in this region are in exactly the same position. They want to go home, but they can't. But it gets worse. In addition to the devastation, the Philistines gloated in their victory. Verses 8 to 10, I'm not going to read, but let me just tell you what happens. The Philistines found Saul's body. They decapitated him. They stripped off his armor. They fastened his body to the wall of an Israelite fort was on a commercial route, so anybody going past would see this, see Saul's body. It'd be much like if some kind of victory happened in our state and someone were to hang a body from the Minnesota State Capitol. They took his army to a temple where they set it up as a symbol of defeat of Israel's army. So this is not just um, a national defeat, a military defeat. This is a defeat of Israel's God. It's king, it's God, and it's nation. Then comes a curious little incident that would be easy for us to overlook. It takes place in a little town called Jabesh-Gilead, probably not a place you've heard of, but it was the scene, um, the site of one of Saul's finest moments. Years before, at the beginning of his reign of power, this small border town found itself surrounded by Philistines who, who were laying siege to the town. When Saul heard about it, he responded. Um, what he did is kind of odd. He took a an ox, he chopped it into bits and sent one to every tribe in the nation. So 12 bits went out. And he mustered an army and they went to the rescue of this town. They saved the town and all its residents and they never forgot what Saul had done. So when they heard what had been done to Saul in verses 11 to 13, they responded. They traveled through the night to the fort where Saul's body was hung. They took down his body at great risk to their own lives, the bodies of his sons. They took all of them back to Jabesh where they buried them with great honor. Um, 
whatever they could do under the circumstances. Out of respect for Saul, they fasted and mourned for seven days. It's no wonder that the narrator calls them men of great valiant, or valiant men. They did their best to honor one to whom they believed they owed their lives. At this point, the story shifts, and we now move to a new book of the Bible, to 2 Samuel, although really we ought to see it as a continuation of the book. They only broke it in pieces because it didn't fit on one scroll, so we have two books. At this point, the news of the battle and the tragic outcome have not reached David. So in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see David receive the news and how he responds to what he hears. The way he learns of the army's defeat and Saul's death is from a man who came from the battlefield um, where David and his men were. Um, He was an Amalekite, a foreigner. His clothes were torn, he was covered with dust. And when he arrives, David asks him what happened. And the man told him of the defeat. He told them that many of the men had been killed. And then he said, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And he elaborated. He said that he had been near Saul toward the end of the battle. He said Saul had called to him as the Philistines approached and asked this man to kill him before they arrived. So he says this, so I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. I took the crown that was on his head, the band on his arm, and had brought him here to my Lord. He's a liar. He's telling a different story with some of the same details, but he's replacing uh, himself into the story, putting himself into the story probably because he wanted to be rewarded in some way for eliminating the man who had been threatening David's life. And David's reaction here takes him completely off guard. Actually, it takes everyone there off guard and us even today. We expect David to react with joy and to honor this man, but instead David reacts with sadness. He doesn't celebrate. Instead, he grieves. And then he has the man executed. Now that's a very harsh, seems harsh to us, but David's objection here is principled. He reacts this way not because the man is opportunistic and a schemer, although he is. He reacts this way because of the disrespect that he shows for the Lord's anointed. Again, David doesn't know the details, maybe not for some time, about what actually happened. But his primary concern here is Saul's honor. He saw this as a disaster for God's people. So he punishes the one who tries to take credit for Saul's demise. The second half of 2 Samuel chapter 1 is a sad song that David wrote to mark the occasion. I won't read it. Um, It was something, though, that he asked everyone in the nation to memorize. Let me give you an idea of what's behind the words here. Even at the moment when David is about to rise to the throne after 20 years of waiting, he doesn't celebrate, he doesn't gloat, even though this is a man who tried to have him killed. Instead, he shows nothing but praise and adoration for Saul. There's no hatred of the man that has pursued him so single-mindedly. Doesn't brush him aside like a bad memory. Instead, he honored him and asked others to do so as well and treats him with reverence. David did this because he cared. He honored Saul because he felt he should be honored. Not because Saul's life ended well, but because he was God's anointed king. Again, his reaction was not anticipated. Even under a peaceful transition of power, new leaders clean house. Those loyal to the previous regime are gone, new leaders are put in place, and while in our day we may not kill the followers of our rival, we show little mercy. But not David. He did not return Saul's jealousy and murderous intent with hatred. He didn't look for ways to get even before Saul got him. He left things in God's hands, and instead of becoming bitter, he grew gracious. 
What's interesting in reading this story is uh, you'd think if you knew some of the particulars, you'd think, okay, everyone can now feel sorry and pity for David. But instead, what we feel is admiration. David could have used this whole thing to elicit pity, to find sympathetic ears. Instead, he expressed sorrow. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying here that we should let ourselves become victims of injustice. We can and should do all we can to protect ourselves physically and our emotional well-being when they're at stake. But David teaches us that we can continue to show respect for a person despite their flaws. And we can learn to treat others with respect. I can't help but be struck by the contrast between David's example and our own contemporary culture. News reports are endless about disaster, crime and war, famine and flood, political misconduct, social scandal. We hear gossip moralizing. We hear analysis and psychoanalysis. But we never hear sadness. It seems that we never consider that we're dealing with a human life. We, never, we fail to acknowledge the dignity of an individual, even a flawed human being. All we care about is being entertained. So we trivialize the tragedy of others. Davis shows us that even when we watch the demise of our opponents, it is to be lamented, not celebrated. So David doesn't gloat. He doesn't express any vindictive satisfaction. Instead, he mourns. It's troubling, I think, to see how easily we dehumanize a fellow human being, and it just should not be. One test of our commitment to Christ is whether we can treat all people, and I mean all people, with dignity and respect, despite our differences. Even if someone fails to treat us with this kind of respect, it does not excuse us from showing the kind of love that Jesus encourages us to love, even our enemies. Let me also talk about public grief. I think we've lost our capacity for public grief. We're so polarized that we react with glee when our opponents meet their demise. Instead of grieving, we gloat. And it's sad and it's disrespectful. Even though God had rejected Saul as Israel's king, David recognizes that something tragic has taken place. Saul's life was itself a demonstration of tragic decisions. What could have been was not, and yet he was still to be honored. David's sentiments, again, run counter to the culture of his day and our day. Human life has dignity that goes well beyond how well a life has been lived. And David's not so consumed here by ambition or even relief at his personal safety. But he does pause long enough to acknowledge, respect, and to give voice to the grief that they must all have had. As strong a leader as he is, he knows that this is not a moment that is all about him. This doesn't mean that David overlooked Saul's failures. They were clear to all. And, and on some ways, his sadness and sorrow are as much about what could have been as anything. The next chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 2, David is anointed king over Judah. That's just one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's his tribe. The next time that we take up this story in the next year or two, we'll see how David is crowned king over the entire nation. It's an occasion that will take place about 25 years after David was first uh, acknowledged to be the future king of Israel. But at this point in the story, the narrator seems less concerned with position and title as with helping us see David as a person of character. The ancient Greeks said that character is destiny. David, even himself, is not perfect. And the rest of the story will re reveal some sizable lapses in judgment and some serious moral failures. But he also has his high points, and this is one of them. His sensitivity to God and to the things that God values make David such an important role model for us even today. 
Now, we've covered about two and a half chapters, and I've only been able to read just a few verses. But what we've witnessed is the, the tragedy, but also honorable behavior of someone. First, we've had the people of Jabesh Gilead, people who show us how to honor those in authority even when they fail us, publicly or privately. And we've learned about the example of David who chose to honor Saul to to respect the office he held and the good he'd done despite his later failures. As I read these chapters or read these chapters this week, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if we today were to witness the death of one of our leaders. Would we grieve as David did, honoring the position they've held and the good they've done, even if we have profound disagreements or significant disappointments? Or would we gloat and speak disrespectfully as many likely expected David to do? Unfortunately, I think I know the answer. We must show our leaders respect, even when we disagree with them. But respect is a value that seems to have eroded over time. In everyday civic life, respect for those in authority is diminishing. And our leaders are among the worst offenders. But so are we with our Facebook posts and Twitter posts. When our heroes fail, let us grieve their loss. When our mentors sin, of course, we should disclaim their evil. But let's also remember the the good they did is no less good. The truth they spoke is no less true, and the love that they gave us is no less love. To remember well and to honor our fallen heroes does not condone what they've done. It simply honors and celebrates what was good. That's what David and the people of Jabesh Gilead did. Back to that older brother of my high school friend, the one who had such an important influence and impact in my life, who later disavowed much of what he taught me. I'm still sad about what happened. For 20 years or more, maybe now, I've prayed for him every week, prayed that he might reconsider his previous commitment to Jesus Christ. Will that happen? Probably not, but I'm going to continue to pray. But I am grateful for how God used him in my life at that time. I've had many other mentors, several others who are much more important than he has been. And yet, God used him at a particular and unique and important time in my life. And as sad as I am by what has gone on, I'm grateful I knew him. Though I now reject what he believes and even believe much of what he writes and, re- uh, uh, writes and teaches is harmful, he did me great good and I'm thankful for that. May we as the people of God treat all people with respect, even those who disappoint us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of David. We know that David is not a perfect man, and the next time we pick up the story, we'll see that in full technicolor. But Father, we also see someone who listened to you, who sought you, inquired of you. Someone who uh, exhibited a countercultural way of thinking about things, a way that challenges us even today in our reality. Father, may we be people who respect and honor others. That does not mean, as you have taught us in other places, that we call evil good, but that we respect people as those who've been created in your image, people who are as flawed as they are, still have good things that they do. May we honor those in Jesus' name.